0: Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for January 2019. We've got a special treat for this month. We've got a couple of really tremendous interviews that we can deliver to you in your ears. And the first one is from Nicholas Godfrey, who's a contributor to Senses of Cinema, and he has conducted an interview with the the incredibly well-respected writer and director Kent Jones, uh, and that is a, an interview that he conducted earlier this year. And then we're going to follow up with my QA with Academy Award winning animator Adam Elliott uh, in a QA that I conducted with him uh, quite recently. Uh, and uh, that is essentially our free bonus for January because, as part of our uh, desire to Give back to our listeners. We're giving away a free bonus this this time round. So the Kent Jones thing is our show. Our free bonus for people who are not yet patrons is the interview with Adam Elliott. Uh, and if you enjoy listening to that bonus content, you might want to consider signing up to our Patreon account and uh, joining in with listening to the bonus each and every month. So, without any more preamble from me let's hand over to Nicholas Godfrey and his incredible interview with Kent Jones.
1: To begin with, could you talk a little bit about how you first came to write about film?
0: Mm,
2: I was young, and I really uh, was... ..entranced by cinema first through stills. There was a book of stills. People used to have these coffee table books... Mm. That were, you know, about different things—photographs of John F. Kennedy, um, the history of uh, Life Magazine, you know, stuff like that—and then, you know, there were a lot of movie books. Um, this is in the '60s, and so my parents had a book called *The Movies*, and they used to flip through that and look at stills of actors, and they became very interested in them. Um, and entranced by them really I would just look through the pages over and over again Um, most of them were production stills Mm. um, probably all of them actually and as opposed to frame enlargements and so I haven't thought about that in terms of the relationship between that and actual films but you know and I'm not sure what to make of it still, but that is how I started being interested in films. And then I got, you know, started going to see, watch them and see them and, you know, reading about them. You know, I had Andrew Sarris's book and I saw Richard Schickel's TV series, The Men Who Made the Movies, and I started to get an inkling of what a director was and that kind of thing. So, you know, I saw Cabaret. That was a very explosive moment for me. Um, I started to understand the difference between, you know, newer cinema and older cinema. My father was 10 years older than my mother and he had been in World War II. I associated him with older films that I saw on television, Bogart, you know, uh, and that I loved. Bogart was really a hero for me. Um, and then newer films with my mother, who was really thrilled by, for instance, Robert Altman. You know, she really loved his films. Um, and, and The Godfather, and you know, I'm part Italian, and so that was a, a thing, to see The Godfather films in Mean Streets and to see that things were changing. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think that I always had written since I was a kid. I'm giving you this long-winded answer because writing started when I was very young, and I just was not particularly good in math. Not particularly, I was okay at sports, but not really, I was too dreamy, I guess, you know, and I was just very, uh, writing was something that I was, I liked, um, and that uh, I seemed to be good at, and so I started writing for my own pleasure. I started reading stuff by Godard, you know, when I was a teenager. And then I started writing reviews. And uh, I think the first film criticism I wrote was when it was when about that was published was when I was about 19.
1: Right. And what was that for? Uh,
2: there was a local newspaper in, in Massachusetts, Western Massachusetts, far from Boston. Um, and um, that's where my, the film that I just made is set, um, even though I didn't quite shoot it there close but not quite. And so um it was a small paper that doesn't exist anymore and I was reviewing theater. But because there was a lot of summer theater where I grew up. Um but then Apocalypse Now appeared at the Ziegfeld and before it was finished. Mm. And I went down to New York and I got a ticket and I wrote about it. I watched it and I wrote about it. I don't remember what I wrote, but And was your initial
1: writing on film a way for you to make sense of what you were saying? Or were you discussing the films in dialogue with other things that you'd already seen? What was your initial critical
2: sensibility, let's say? I have a very good memory, a very good visual memory. You know, I I can... If somebody says, I saw a film once, I can't remember what it was called, and I'm like, give me a hint. And if they give me a few words, I can generally pretty much nail it um when i met and started working for marty scorsese i realized that's something that he and i shared you know mm-hmm. um and i was able to call upon that very early of course at first i was just a pretentious you know i was just a young guy i didn't know what i was writing you know i was just sort of reading what other people were writing and then aping them so andrew saras and Godard and you know, I don't know. I I I Andrew Seris, Manny Farber. Although Manny Farber took me a while to understand Manny. Mm-hmm. I bought the book when I was very young, but I, I just it's a great thing to read something that you don't understand. You know, my my best friend in the world is a poet. Mm-hmm. And he and I talk about this a lot, how, you know, when he first started reading the Cantos by Ezra Pound, for instance, I mean, you know, he had no idea what it was. He just knew that it was something that he was drawn to mm. and and that he was, and it was magnificent. And so you become, you develop a relationship with something in a way other than scholastics or by, by other means, you know, um, through a different door. Mm-hmm. And so I think that um, I, you know, I started to just understand cinema incrementally, piece by piece, you know, what editing was, what, you know, a director was, I'm still figuring that out, you know, and, um, still figuring all those things out. And I think that, um, you know, I. I I publish things that people seem to like. Um, the work that I, you know, and I've been, I feel like I, when I first started, you know, being published regularly in the 90s, um, I wrote some things that I liked, other things that I'm not so fond of now, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how to answer your question.
1: <laughs> I'm interested that you mentioned the relation to poetry, because we don't often think of poetry in relation to film <laughs> criticism. Yes. And yet, you know, my mind goes to some of your pieces, your article on In the Moon for Love, for instance, and I think in picking out small details from that film, mm-hmm. you do manage to align yourself with some kind of poetic sensibility that Wong kar is conveying in his work. Mm-hmm. Is this um, part of your process, when you're writing? Are you, are you attempting to convey some kind of spirit of the film or a sensibility of the film?
2: I don't think any other approach ever made sense to me. I always liked, you know, what Andrew Serres did was a wonderful thing. What Godard and Truffaut and, and Rivette did was wonderful too, but it was something other than what interested me. In the case of Godard and Truffaut and the Cahiers critics, they were, all very much involved in waving a flag, planting it in order to become filmmakers, I mean that 's clear, so that 's different from what Andrew was doing um, quite different from what Andre Bazan was doing too, I guess you know, and I mean, even though they were all closely tied to him in one way or another i I think that I always admired Bazan, but i I never Felt a kinship with him in terms of the way that he wrote because he always seemed to be classifying things, and I, I just felt like before you can start classifying, you have to be dealing with the the, the material at hand. Um, you have to be, you know. There's a there's a piece that I wrote a couple of years ago um, about acting. And this story that Ezra Pound quoted about Louis Agassiz, the, the naturalist, you know, who told his student, describe the fish, you know, right? And the guy kept saying, well, you know, he kept giving him generalized descriptions that could have come out of a book until Agassiz just kept saying, go back and tell me about the fish. And then he finally got into the nuts and bolts of it and just described exactly what he saw. And he said, okay, that's it. you know, I think that that's a hard thing for, you know, I mean, um, that's a life problem, right? So I think that too many people, when they're writing about movies, get into categorizations too quickly. They get into uses of terms like "shot" too quickly. Um, I, you know, I am dismayed by by the number of film critics I've met who just don't care about acting. I mean, if acting, you know, I, you know, the way that I see it, if something's part of the way that movies are made, you've got to pay attention to it if you care about movies. If you don't pay attention to it, then you're not doing all of your job as well as you could. You know, don't just settle on things that you know and then make the movies conform to them. You do other things, and so I think that you know to me and I engaged in some of this in my own writing you know things would fit into ideological slots I mean I I think I dispensed with that pretty quickly but you know I mean I ultimately and and I I suppose the great example was always Manny Farber you know who was very interested in what it makes a film tick how do all the gears work together what do they do to create the film experience? And what is the film experience, as opposed to the intended theme, or the story, you know, et cetera, right? Or, you know, categories of of, uh, description that people would get into about performances and stuff like that. So, you know, I mean, I think that with Manny, he was dealing with the actual living experience of the movie. Sometimes you would come at it in a completely insane way. And he would get involved in a very in a kind of um in a game of one upsmanship, I suppose, in terms of who's, you know, got the more advanced position on this or that thing. And, you know, he would always shy away if he saw too many other people agreeing with him, you know. But nonetheless, um He's, he, was, he was really the example in terms of, of what's specific in the film experience. And so I think that's what leads in the direction of poetry that you're talking about, um, you know, because that's what poetry is when it's really operating. Um, you know, it's, it's Wallace Stevens saying, not the idea of the thing, but the thing itself, On the one hand, on the other hand, it's William Carlos Williams saying, no idea has been in things, you know. Mm. Um, I could point to other things that come from Pound. You know, I'm giving you all examples of American poetry, but um, those are the ones that come to mind.
1: (laughs) Uh, So a critic can fulfil many roles or functions. They can offer consumer advice, enforce Mm. a degree of accountability, Mm they can also illuminate and contextualise work and share the thrill of uh, discovery of films. Mm -hmm. What do you view as your responsibilities, let's say, as a critic?
2: Well, I certainly don't view one of them as performing a consumer service. I think it's always a dead end. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think it's really... Because what are you really saying if you're performing a consumer service? You know, what you're saying is you're assuming that there's a tolerance level, right? Mm. I mean, even Susan Sontag was performing a consumer service, but she was doing it for a different kind of population because she was very, very involved in promoting things. The excitement of, you know, seeing something new, you know, like Einstein on the beach or something like that. I think describing something accurately, you know, I mean, again, this is something that I've gone back to a few times, but Manny and I got to be very close um, in the last few years of his life. And he was a painter as well as a film critic, as you know, and there was a massive retrospective of his work at uh, uh, in La Jolla. And he and I were walking around in the last day, and we were just looking at different works, and he said, I try to get myself out of it as much as possible so that the object itself takes on a kind of religious awe. That's precisely what he said. He was talking about his paintings and about the stuff, the flowers from Patricia's garden and the, you know, toys from his childhood that were, you know, there um on the boards but really he could have been talking about films too and um you know boardwell refers to it as impressionism i don't and i love boardwell but i'm not sure if i i just hesitate to agree with that you know it's it's not very different from from what you're finding in poetry or in fiction, it's just that it's a description of something that exists in the world in, a, in one kind of object as opposed to, or an engagement with one kind of object as opposed to a range of them or, you know, a life experience. Um, so it's a restricted form of writing, but it's a form of writing and that's the, that's what it is. Um, I don't, I I suppose that it could be a consumer service. I suppose that it can be a kind of a socio political, you know, you can cross reference films according to, you know, the way that Ray Dernyat did, you know, or Jim Hoverman or something like that. It just doesn't interest me. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's talk a bit about film comment publication with which you're most prominently associated. It's been an enduring presence on the critical landscape. Mm -hmm. How do you think it's. its status has changed over time, or indeed, how has your relationship with the magazine changed over time?
2: Well, I don't know. Those are two different things. Yes. I mean, my own relationship with the magazine has changed simply because I've gone, I, 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 you know, the last, I've done some con coverage and stuff, but really the last big piece of criticism I wrote was a few years ago now. I, you know, and that's just because of where I'm at in my own existence mm-hmm. on, on the planet. Um, It's hard for me to talk about the status of the magazine and how it's changed. I would rather say that the world of film criticism has changed so completely. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's changed in ways that we don't need to rehash. Everyone knows what they are. So I think that... Obviously, that means that a publication like Sight & Sound or Film Comment or CinemaScope, all three different kinds of, you know, publications, or for that matter, you know, a website like Senses of Cinema, which has been around for a while now, um their place in... I'm trying to think of whether I should use the word culture or not. I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know about the word culture. But their place is seems to be endlessly shifting mm. um in the case of Kau Cinéma, it's a very dramatic shift because to be perfectly frank i i, I don't really know the magazines has seem to go in a very strange direction over the years you know um in the case of of uh film comment it's it's stayed remarkably consistent and I think that the level of the writing has always been very good um so, I think that it's the question the question now though, the big question is just film criticism in general. What is it? What does it mean to be a part of a you know people talk about the critical community, but what does that really mean? Um, it feels like people are more separate. There is certainly a community of cinema, there's no question about that. I mean, you know, I'm seeing uh, Tony Rains for dinner in a couple nights, and I mean, you know, that's a friendship that comes out of cinema, pure and simple. We met at the Rotterdam Film Festival 20 years ago, you know, and we were both presenting films, um, and we've we've kept in touch ever since, or my relationship with Boardwell or or, uh, Noel Carroll. But I mean, you know, Well, most different. He was my teacher. But nonetheless, um, it feels also, though, like in a lot of the major outlets that are still left, like the question of film criticism has a lot leaning on it now. Um, The amount of attention, for instance, that was given to Wonder Woman by very serious critics or War for the Planet of the Apes um, is perfectly fine with me. I, you know, um, the idea that they represent shifts in the culture, you know, and that big-budget Marvel filmmaking is an arena in which we are able to perceive you know, cultural shifts and political shifts, and, you know, um, is, uh, I think, um, illusory. Mm. But, you know, it seems to be a big idea right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in this idea of prevailing critical orthodoxies. Yeah. Do you think that the democratization of criticism has, um, is not conducive to the development of distinctive critical sensibilities and voices
2: i'm not sure that there really is such a thing as the democratization of film criticism to be perfectly honest i mean i I understand what you mean you know and, and you know the idea the way that it was let's say in the late 70s when you know in the united states at least you know when you had Andrew Sieros, Pauline Kael, Vincent Canby, Rex Reed, you know, I mean, and they were deciding basically the fate of films. I mean, you know, that's just not true anymore. I mean, no, you could, and that's, you know, that's probably a good thing. And I think that Manola Dargas, for, you know, for one who's a good friend, would probably, you know, happily agree to that, mm-hmm. that it's not a good thing. I mean, that it is a good thing, yes. that, it's, that it's no longer prevalent. On the other hand... I can't really say that I think that film criticism has been democratized. I think that what's happened is that there are um, more voices of people talking about films, but they don't really have anything to contribute in the way of criticism. You know, I mean, if you go on one of those, you know, absolute horrors like CinemaScore or, or Rotten Tomatoes, I mean, you know, which I think are just... Immoral. I mean, you know, this should be wiped out immediately. Um, really, you know, I, I, and I think that you know, you look at a lot of the people that are cited, and you're just like, uh, okay, you know, I mean, they're just writing stuff in order to get on Cinema Score or Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I had this very funny moment. James Gray said, "Well, I looked at my score on Rotten Tomatoes." and my highest score was for my appearance in your film. Um, Which is funny and horrifying at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the
1: only lesson we can take from these review aggregation systems is, I mean, typically you would think a film which splits the consensus as a more interesting object than one which uh, has 98% of critics saying, it is a good object. Or is this an irrelevant
2: distinction to draw? Like you say, the whole thing's very depressing. Well, that's consumer... (laughs) That's not a consumer service. That's a consumer... That's the insistence on people as consumers Mm -hmm. above all else. That's what those things are. That's Mm -hmm. why I find them so disgusting. Mm -hmm.
1: Let's change gears by talking about our setting here in Hong Kong. I'm interested... Have you seen The Shining Liang VR?
2: No, I'm going to see it on Monday.
1: Right. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about
2: is foray into this sphere? Well, it, VR uh, to me is not really a new wrinkle in cinema mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. You can't cut. I mean, I guess you can, but it doesn't really... You know, I, it doesn't... You know, in in when I was making Hitchcraft Truffaut, um, we were going to include a... a A section of the film on rope and then we didn't but it's an extra on the DVD because it's very interesting you know Olivier Asias is like well you know I think that rope is just the work of a major it's a major work and it's one of his greatest films and it's so daring and then David Fincher you know says well it's just not cinema is it it's not it's 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 not just anti-cinematic it's just not cinema and cinema is cutting and if you can't cut, then what's the point? He said, they just restored it. I don't know why, you know, that's that's Fincher talking. But, and VR is that kind of continuum, you know, it doesn't, yes, there's cutting, but it doesn't lend itself to it. I think it lends itself to immersion, which is why I understand why it makes sense to Simon Young, because his films are already in that territory. So I'm really looking, I'm really excited to see that. Um, most of what I've seen is very disconcertingly discontinuous. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's just the urge to cut is there and it violates what's interesting about, about VR. I think what could be interesting about, you know, what is interesting about VR is not cutting, it's staying in one place and... What letting things play out, so mm. anyway, so you've
1: written very eloquently about Simon Liang's work. Um, several other major directors from this region, Wong yeah. Kar Wai, we touched on before, you know, Zha Zheng Ke, Ho hsien Could you talk a little bit about your personal connection to these works?
2: Hmm. Yeah, you know, it was interesting when I was, I've, I've never been to Hong Kong before, now. I've never been to the mainland. Um I've been to Japan and I've been to Central Asia but I've never been to to Hong Kong. And um when I was flying in and then when I was in the car on my way to the hotel and when I was walking around yesterday and taking the Star Ferry uh, and just kind of, you know, walking through Cullen um garden and stuff like that. I really had a powerful sensation that I had been prepared for the city by the cinema. And I was thinking about it, it's the films that are specifically Hong Kong films, I was thinking about, you know, election and triad election, the the Johnny Doe films, Uh, I was thinking about, uh, and PTU. obviously Walker Wise films Um, but then also Edward Young's films even though it's Taipei it's the same part of the world and it's the same kind of rhythm of life Mm. on the street in a way Mm. it's much more populated here and dense um, but still uh, it felt very familiar to me and it's always great when there are moments where the stories that are being told in the movies come directly from the moment and the place and the sense of place. And that's true of early 30s movies in the United States um, or a sense of time. That's true of the Val Luton films and the Pal Pressburger films that come out of certain certain moments. Mm-hmm. And then with with those films that, that you speak of, of, of that era, uh, they came directly out of a particular moment in time and a particular place, a particular part of the world that was undergoing a particular circus, particular set of circumstances. And so, you know, I felt a different kind of kinship with French cinema, right, with certain with certain French cinema. Of the era that felt to me very, um, Olivier Asias's films when I first saw them, and Claire Denis's films, and Arnaud de Bichon's films felt very, um, connected to the sense of being alive that I was familiar with. You know, of someone of my age, even though Olivier is a little bit older than I am, it felt very close with, and of course, it's no, um, Coincidence that Olivier was one of the first people to write about Asian cinema because he felt that he, he recognized something that was current and connected to the present in a way that a lot of the films being made around him weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. It was a very global moment, but it was also a moment when there was a certain emanation, there was a certain common vision, right? I suppose you could, for lack of a better word, a certain commonality between the films that were coming from Taiwan, from the mainland, and from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, you know, that there was that commonality, but then also, they were all uniquely individual voices, and then there would be other people, like Lin Cheng-Sheng, who were sort of operating on the wave of what was happening. And those films, you know, his first couple films were very good as well. Um, That was was, uh, an exciting moment and I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, I suppose that it was a, it was a recognition of something that was a spirit that I recognized in films about places that I knew coming from places that I didn't know. I suppose that would be the best way of putting it. Mm.
1: Can you talk about that a bit more in the context of
2: yourself in the United States and also your role as a curator in New York. Well, I mean, just to finish the thought, if you talk about, for instance, when I was a kid and I saw The Friends of Eddie Coyle, I was very immediately taken with it because it's a movie that's set in Massachusetts. I grew up in Massachusetts and another part of it, but still in Massachusetts, and it was not seen often in movies and it felt very um, true. To life as I knew it. Um, When I saw Mean Streets, that was a different kind of recognition. I'm part Italian. My mother's maiden name was Angelo, you know, and uh, between Mean Streets and The Godfather, but Mean Streets in particular, cinema changed, you know, in terms of, you know, ethnically Italian people actually playing Italian Americans. You know, I know that. Herbie Keitel and James Conner, you know, but still. Um, and it felt like it came, the story came from the place, you know, in Mean Streets and in Taxi Driver as well. Um, so when I saw Chungking Express, I'd never been to Hong Kong. I didn't know, you know, what the streets were like. I had no idea, but, but it had that same. Relationship to place, the the, and to what the place was at that particular moment in time, and then in the same by the same token, you know, in the mood for love, is a relationship to the past of that place in a very very particular way, and you could argue that you know Goodfellas, for instance, is, you know, it's 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 another kind of approach to, the past. Anyway, um, how. It works with curating, I suppose it works with curating in the sense that you were talking about works that are made by individuals, Mm -hmm. as opposed to films that are meant to send a message Mm -hmm. or that are mass produced. So, you know, there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was asked once, so, someone someone was interviewing me and said, you know, you've been accused of running an tourist film festival. And I said, well, uh, guilty, I guess, if you mean movies made by human beings, then, you know, you got me. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, I'm interested in talking a little bit about your um, transition to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've mentioned Olivia Assas a couple of times. Mm-hmm. He was a guest here last year. Yes, obviously has a long connection with Hong Kong. Mm. He too is a critic turned filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering for yourself, how has your life as a critic informed now your work as a filmmaker?
2: Well, you know it's interesting that you mentioned it in relation to Olivier because when I was in my early thirties. Uh, I started reading Cahiers de Cinéma and seeing that there were filmmakers that I really didn't know, you know, uh, whose work seemed interesting, and that not only did I not know them, but they weren't really available. Their work really wasn't available in the United States, in in any, you know, it wasn't on home video, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided I would make a trip to Paris and see some of the films. So I went and I saw a bunch of movies, and it was a very eye-opening experience. Um, um, and one of those films was, you know, uh, Paris saint And And that really struck a chord with me. I'm not sure if it was the greatest film that I saw. I also saw Van Gogh by Piala on that trip. But nonetheless, it was, a, you know, a film that seemed to me to be completely in harmony with the way that life felt for me, for my friends, you know, back home, um, in a way that I wasn't seeing in American movies. And then I saw Nouvelle Vie, and that strengthened my sense of recognition. And so I wrote, Olivier and I had a mutual friend, Alex Horvath from Vienna. Um, Alex gave me Olivier's address, I wrote to him, and he wrote me back, and he said I, you know, and, 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 you know, the first piece that I published in Film Comment was about Olivier, and, and, um, you know, I remember he wrote me back, he said, I never thought that I would, it's good to be recognized on the other side of the Atlantic. I've shown some of my films, but really it's never been, you know, I've never thought that they were going to catch on. And, um... He said, you know, I just made a film that might interest you. It's called Cold Water. You know, so when he came to the film festival, I remember that year, Edward was also there with a Confusion Confusion. I remember meeting him and spending some time with him. And um, Olivier and I, over the years, you know, got to be very close friends. And he's really one of my closest friends. Um, And... I had another script for a long time that I was trying to get off the ground, and I had all these producers involved and actors. and He said to me, "You know, um, you've got all these producers, and I keep hearing that you're on the verge of making, and then it's not happening." And he said, "You know, nobody's going to get your film made except you. You're the one who has to drive it forward." And uh, that's a very simple thing to say, but it really, you know. it's true, and it really um opened my eyes because I had always been very polite about it, and, you know oh, I don't want to ask you for too much money, you know so and then you know i I didn't make that film, but I wound up writing another film, and the one that's the one that I made, and mm-hmm. he was always encouraging to me, so was Arnaud de Bichon, another close friend. And Olivier, you know, when he saw it, he said "I, I uh, what he said was very meaningful to me, his reaction. But um, I think that the reason that I'm bringing that up is because he said when he was writing that for him criticism was always a means, not in a mercenary way, but it seemed like a logical step toward filmmaking. that's not... The same in the united states of course it's a very different kind of thing um maybe now you could argue that it would be a little less stringent just because of the way that film criticism is in this wild west sort of you know thing that goes on but um it isn't the same in the united states and it's a real leap because there's not the same kind of support for the arts of course you know particularly now for obvious reasons but um it's always, I don't know if it's a reversal, but it's almost a reversal. It's, it's um, when, I, when I made the film and when I was preparing to make the film, I understood that everything that I knew about films was, some, were, it was material in one way and completely immaterial in another way because I just had to make it and I had to make the team, you know, I had to bring everybody into the, process and talk to everybody and be there to answer decisions. And you know if I didn't feel ready for something it didn't matter, I had to do it anyway. And if you know I ran out of time and I couldn't do any more takes, then that was just the way that it was. And if it was the end of the day and I was facing meal penalties unless I cut setups, then I had to cut setups. Um, or conversely, when I was involved in something and I wanted to get what I wanted to get, I couldn't leave until I got it. I know that that sounds contradictory, but then by the same token, that's, you know, filmmaking, the clock's ticking. As Ulu Grossberg said to me once, you know, he's like, what you have to do is you have to be relaxed, give the appearance of being relaxed, even if you aren't, you know. Um, and um, the work of it. Is a completely different entity from film criticism, probably because film criticism has grown, you know, very divergent from filmmaking in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, so, I guess I don't know. It was it was an evolution, I suppose, in one way, but in another way, it was a jump into the into the ocean. Mm.
1: Let me ask you what you've seen recently that you've really
2: enjoyed. Uh, I, I was really moved by anas Barnett's film with JR. You know, I, I, the force of it is really something to behold and the simplicity of it. And that simplicity is something that's only possible uh, from a lifetime. I mean, you know, <clears throat> and also from the two of them working together, she's working from his youthful energy. He's working from her um, youthful octogenarian's viewpoint. But, you know, that scene where they visit uh, Cartier-Bresson's grave, the tiny graveyard, and she says, I'm really, I'm I'm looking forward to death, really, you know, and he says, why? And she says, well, you know, it'll come, and then it'll be over, you know, and it's a very truthful moment, says the moment where she's, you know, the missed encounter with Godard. Um, Uh... I will say that I really liked I I you know I caught up with a lot of Oscar screeners because I was very. The minute the New York Film Festival was over, I was editing some smaller things that I was working on for various, and I was just you know not seeing a lot of stuff in the theaters, so I was uh, I really liked uh, the post. <laughs> I thought it was very. Um, you know, it's 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 an interesting thing that Spielberg does when he's he's making these movies that are meant to address like you know the here and now in a very you know not so veiled way like with Lincoln you know, that was at the time that Obama was trying to pass the health care bill this one for is obvious you know the parallels were pretty obvious but I was so there's so many movies now that are so lauded for reasons other than filmmaking. Uh, that are made by people who don't appear to have seen a lot of movies and where things just feel slightly off but i i um it was it was great to see a movie that was made by someone who just understands rhythm, the image blocking you know light. The actors, you know, and, and you know, you can debate about casting Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley, but you know, Meryl Streep is astonishing in in the film, and so is Bob Odenkirk, and you know, Meryl Streep's always good, but she's often in a vacuum in this movie. She's not; she's just you know, completely integrated into the the film, I guess. Um, I really loved Wonderstruck. I was very puzzled by the reaction to it. Right. Uh, And I was, you know, like a lot of people, I mean, you know, Zama by Lucrezia Martel is an incredible film. I have to say that the reaction to that film at film festivals and the way that it was treated to me was a real warning bell, Um, you know, that things have really changed in the film festival world. I mean, you know... I'd been hearing about the film for a long time. She took a long time to get it made. She got very ill, you know, during the editing process, as everyone knows. And then there was a rumor going around that it was, a, you know, maybe a disappointment. And when I saw it, I was just astonished. I mean, you know, it's not quite as immediate an experience as her other films because it's not her material, but really, I mean, you know, it's an extraordinary piece of work. And the fact that it was uninvited by you know some major film festivals and treated as poorly as it was um you know there's that there's the whole scenario with Arnaud de My Golden Days and Ismail's Ghosts there's the the uh, you know the fact that ten years ago Pedro Costa made a film that was in competition in Cannes that would be unthinkable now you know I mean uh, things have changed and um that really, um, that was a very haunting. It was very haunting and, and disturbing to see and to realize, you know, just how much they've changed.
1: What do you view as the critic's role in shaping our understanding of film history? So, how does criticism within a moment? then shape our understanding when we return to that criticism from a
2: different point in time? I'll try some different ways of answering this question because it's a little bit not abstract. Uh, it is a little bit abstract. Um, on the one hand, if you're writing film criticism that's truly engaged with the work, you can't help but be engaging with the time in which the film is made. You know? I mean, I'm reminded of the fact that every year when the New York Film Festival comes around, you know, there's some interviews that people do just about, you know, what did you find, you know, notable about this year, you know, and and every year this this same question arises. It's perfectly valid. What were the themes that you you know pursued this year that you saw and I say, well, we don't. We just pick the best films. The themes are there because they're all coming out of the same moment, the common themes. You know, so I think that that's something that's absolutely, you know, important in criticism, but it's important in the sense that it involves a deep engagement with understanding film history by having a knowledge of the the way that it's occurred in earlier times. Um I mean, for instance, you know, that piece that I wrote about in The Mood for Love, around the same time, Wes Anderson made the Royal Tenenbaums, and I mean, you know, I found there's a certain commonality there in in music, in repeated, you know, uh, behaviors that are meant to mask deeper emotional longings and, you know, deficits and anger. You know, in Rushmore, you know, the character appears to be very funny and jolly, but he's a very angry young man, you know. Um, that's the the greatness of Wes Anderson's films. And Wong um, Kar Wai and Chunking Express, all the stuff with the pineapples, you know, I mean, he's doing something very similar, the repetition of California treatment. Mm-hmm. And this is something that was in, that was very present in movies at that moment. It isn't now, but it was at that time, you know. By the same token, you know, you could say that, that uh, to take a very, very obvious example, the noir moment in American cinema is, you know, looking at a, it's not just a, 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 a f- something that was in fashion, it's something that's deeply embedded in what was happening in the culture and after the war and, you know, for various reasons. Um, People call it a genre now, I'm not sure if that's correct. I think it's more of a moment. So, you know, you have to have some kind of engagement with the history of cinema to know that, or to know, you know, about the, the kind of black-hearted pessimism in certain films that were made after the war in France, you know, Panique, and Clouseau's films, mm-hmm. and, and then variations on it. Renaissance films and I think that's, that's one thing. Um, I think that on a more specific level that relates back to what we talked about at the beginning of the interview with, with Manny and with poetry, Manny's the one who said films can't help but capturing you know the DNA of their moment. And the DNA of their moment is not a matter of their ideology. It's not a matter of, of the kinds of things that a lot of film theory concerned itself with for too long. Um, it's a matter of very, you know, extremely specific choices and details. Um, for instance, you know, in Val Lewton's movies, Why is it, what is the quietness? And the way that the simplicity of the people and the way that they speak in relation to the rest of cinema at the time, but also in relation to what was going on in the culture on the home front in the 40s. I don't know, I wasn't alive in the 40s, but I can get a sense of it, I think, And it's not just a matter of, you know, Val Luton being kind of a lonely poetic soul or Jacques Turner being like-minded. It's something else. It's, um, you know, if you're making films, you're making, you're engaging with the world around you. So, you know, you have to speak from, you know, common language, common principles, common images, common gestural language. And gestural language, I think, is really gets to the, part of it. Um, Gestural language, the way that people wear their clothes, the way that they stand, the way that there's an understanding of the fact that they're in a movie and that there's an element of translation going on from you know, a real experience. You know, when people are having dinners, get-togethers in uh, cat people, or when people, when she's alone in the bathtub, um, crying, the sense of solitude is, is quite unusual, um, the sense of loneliness and and absolute isolation, you know, human isolation is very unusual. What do these things have to, you know, it's not a matter of like, Looking at sociological histories and matching things up—that's a mistake that I think a lot of, a lot of critics have made. It's not—I'm not saying that it's invaluable, but I think it's actually a matter of starting from the specifics of what you're seeing in the movie and building from there, rather than, you know, going outside the movie. Um, and so, I think that that's also something that's connected to film history because, I mean, if you're looking at the gestural language of now. Um, you're seeing something that's quite different from the gestural language of the 40s and that's very different from the gestural language of the 30s. You know, you don't see women standing in movies now making this gesture but you saw it a lot. You know, it was it was once very common. You don't see people doing this now but you used to see it a lot, men and women. Mm. Um, and um, And then that has to do with the clothes that they're wearing and the way that the clothes hang on them and the way that they can move in them it's something that Manny thought about a lot for instance in relation to the 30s and how things changed with the 40s how the clothing the bodies were much more lived in and <clears throat> less athletically you know toned in the 30s than they were in the 40s the clothing was much looser and more lived in in the, in the 40s things became very constricted and kind of you know um these are these are uh, and and those are things that happen for many reasons for on, on many levels and then you know when you're dealing with the present, um, it becomes a different kind of question. You know, the other day when I flew in, I was watching Twin Peaks. I hadn't seen that, so I looked at the first four episodes. It's interesting in relation to where he's been where he is now as an artist. Um his his sense of real hard life um, between, you know with that, that doppelganger version of come of uh, Cuba. Yeah, Cooper. Um, the orange skin, the hair, um, the demeanor—I uh, don't know. So I think that you know I could go on and on, I guess. But I mean, you know, the point is that, um, and it's—and by the way, it's not just a matter of the history of the cinema. I think it's also a matter of, of the history of painting, for instance. I mean, if you know how. People in Bruegel's peasant wedding look you're seeing a reflection of you know certain ways of moving and being, and you know not just the customs, but the way that the bride is sitting, the way that the man the, the baker who's bringing the pies is is bent over uh, the relationship of the painter to that motion and how he put so much time and effort into it. Um, I, I, you know, these are, these are all interrelated, and interrelated with writing about different periods and, um, I think, I think that that's, that's the role of criticism. There's not, there's not much of it that does that. <laughs> it's hard, it's hard work, but I mean, writing is hard work. I think
0: that's a good place to end it. So thank you so much. Greg. So next up is our bonus segment for January, and this is my Q&A with Adam Elliott. So everybody gets access to this bonus. This is our Christmas gift to you. Full disclosure, he is a, a, a colleague of, of mine, and uh, I've worked you know, with him over the last couple of years, He did win an Academy Award for Harvey Crumpet. It's something that he will talk about in this interview. And I just know that you are completely going to enjoy this uh, incredible discussion with Adam Elliott about his life and his career.
3: Right, Adam. Right, I'm ready. You're ready? Can you hear us over there? Okay, right,
0: okay. (laughs) I mean, I guess where we need to start is going into stop motion animation, not necessarily the most obvious career path.
3: No, no. So
0: how on earth did you end up in that?
3: Well, it's the question I get probably the most is, uh, Adam, how did you... Why are you an adult that plays (coughs) with plasticine? And how did you get into animation and more specifically stop-motion animation, which is the technical term for the type of animation that I do? And for those who've maybe never seen a stop-motion film, uh, the closest comparison uh, I can give is, is, uh, who's seen Wallace and Gromit? Well, that's not me. I don't do that. (laughs) Uh, But uh, we use the same technique, which is that we animate using plasticine. And all our characters, every prop, set, in character, is a real tangible, tactile uh, object that you could hold in your hand. Uh, There's not one single frame of computer generated imagery in any of the films that I've made since 1996. We certainly use computers to help us make our films but we, uh, we are what we call traditionalists and that we still make our films the old-fashioned way although we don't use film anymore celluloid has sadly passed away it has. so uh, i i studied in 1996 uh back then i i did actually want to come to swinburne But the film school had just closed down and moved to the College of the Arts. So I had very few choices. There was no, all I could do was a postgraduate diploma, there was no degree. So back in 1996 I went and did the postgrad diploma at the College of the Arts. Uh, Before that I'd been selling hand-painted t-shirts down at the St Kilda Esplanade craft market. (laughs) And my parents weren't too thrilled about that because they spent a fortune on my private school education at Halebury College, Uh, but it was a job that I loved. I was down there for five years. I sold over 5,000 of these individually hand-painted T-shirts. It did become a bit monotonous, and I thought, well, I might as well become an animator. Same thing. (laughs) Uh, So I went to the VCA. And um, I actually wanted to do 2D animation. I'd always drawn, I'd always was interested in drawing, and, and, but I'd always made things as well. I hadn't touched plasticine since I was a little kid. And my lecturer was very, um, very encouraging. I, I think it's the simplest term. He, he saw that um, I was much better making things than I was drawing. And he suggested that my first student film, my student film back then uh, was called Uncle, he suggested I make it with plasticine. And I was very lucky because at the time my father owned a hardware shop so I got all the free access to wood and glue and nails and things like that. So I made this little film called Uncle and um, I had very low expectations for it. At the end of the year we were told that the best thing to do was to enter film festivals. So I entered the, the Cannes of Animation, the Annecy Animation Festival in France I got in, um, I got into international competition, which I didn't know was very hard to get into. I then went to Annecy and saw my film on the big screen and I think that's when I fell in love with filmmaking. Because to sit at the back of an audience of 300 people and listen to them laugh and then also get moved by one of my stories was a very uh, powerful uh, emotion, and I think that's when I got hooked. So to cut a long story short, that was back in 1996. Since then I've made four more short films and a feature film, and that's all I've pretty much done since then. Um, My father always used to say, Adam, it'd be good if you had something to fall back on. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Mind you, he was an acrobatic clown, but we won't go there. That's another story. so yeah, that's, that's where it all began, and, and, and now the irony is that I'm, I'm now teaching yes. animation, teaching screenwriting to uh, students here at Swinburne, as one of, and also making films. I haven't retired. So yes, I'm, I'm juggling both. That's a very long answer that, to your question. That is question. a very long answer to <laughs> Sorry. Very short question. That's okay. Um, so obviously the thing that really
0: brought you to prominence was Harvey Crumpet. So where, what's the trajectory
3: from Uncle to Harvey Crumpet? How did you get to that point? Sure, well, after I graduated, I discovered there was government funding for short films in Australia. So the Australian Film Commission, as they were called back then, uh, they uh, funded, I think, six or so short animations per year, as well as short live action films. So I um, moved back home with my parents in narry Warren and uh, wrote a script and submitted it to the Australian Film Commission. And they gave me $42,000, which sounds a lot. And and back then, we were still shooting on 16mm film on a Bolex camera. So for a year, uh, by then my father had sold his hardware shop and bought a storage unit company in Moorabbin. So I made my second film, Cousin, in a storage unit in 602. And uh, for a year, uh, I sat there with my plasticine making this film, Cousin, with your money, taxpayers' money. Uh, and um, had low expectations for that film. Um, it also got into Annecy. It won the, the AFI Award for Best Short Animated Film. And so I started to realise, well, oh, gee, you know, I, I can just keep telling and making these little short five-minute films about my family. And, uh, I, and that film was Cousin, and then I made a third film, Brother. I've got 64 cousins, so I thought I'd just... <laughs> keep, work your way through the keep lot, Keep doing this right? the rest of my life. <laughs> Uh, and so then I made Brother and it did very well at festivals and uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, what do I do next? Um, and it was at that point a producer, Melanie Coombs, came along and she said, look, I think it's time you did something a bit longer, something a bit more substantial. Why don't you do a half hour film? And she said, go away and, and see if you can write a half hour film. So I went away and wrote this film, Harvey Crumpet. And, uh, I based it on a scout, uh, I was a cub scout, and never made it to scouts, but I was a cub. Um, and I had a cub leader who had a steel plate in his head. He'd had a car accident, had this steel plate in his head. And I was very interested in that. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be funny if he, if he could pick up radio signals with that steel plate? Or <laughs> what if it became magnetized? I've got a very fertile <laughs> imagination. So he became the sort of the inspiration for Harvey Crumpet. I also had a dog called Harvey, a fox terrier called Harvey. I had a lot of crumpets, put the two words together. <laughs> Harvey Crumpet and, uh, and I don't know, I just, I'm a very intuitive writer. It all just, I just write from instinct and, and I observe people around me. Every time I'm on a tram, I'm always observing and writing things down. So Harvey Crumpet just became this, this purge of ideas and an amalgamation of all these people I'd met in my life. And we're very lucky to have Geoffrey Rush as our narrator and uh, he read the script and said, sure, it sounds, why not, you know, (laughs) why not? And and, so he came on board. Then we got Kamal involved to do a cameo voice. So it was all a bit random and ad hoc and we, again, low expectations. Got into the Annecy Film Festival in France and uh, the next minute we were shortlisted for an Oscar and then... The rest is history, and yeah. Did you, making
0: Harvey Crumpet, were you doing that on your own or did you have a team with you or not?
3: Well, with Harvey, we, because it was a half hour film, we got more money. We, we got $300,000 from Screen Australia, Film Victoria, SBS Independent. And it sounds like a lot of money, but again, because we were shooting on film, <laughs> uh, that money really didn't go a long way. So I was back in Moorabbin in the storage unit, and uh, on average I was shooting about three to five seconds per day. It's one of the slowest and therefore (laughs) most expensive (laughs) art forms in the world. Uh, Most of the time it was just myself. Melanie, my producer, was back in the office in Fitzroy, but I was out in Moorabbin every day um, and the conditions weren't fabulous. In winter it would get very cold and my plasticine would almost freeze. Uh, In summer, the opposite, the plasticine would start to melt and eyeballs would fall out and fingers (laughs) drop off. And there was a day, actually, I'll never forget, it was was a 40-degree day in my storage unit with the steel walls. It was over 45 degrees in there. And I was forced to actually animate naked (laughs) just to cope with things. And I remember that day very vividly thinking, gee, (laughs) <laughs> there, there must have been a few thoughts. Here well, I, what do I thought I had? I'm in my 20s, you know, um, I'm in my late 20s. All my friends are graduating from university becoming doctors and lawyers. Here I am out in Moorabbin in a storage unit playing with plasticine. I think I've made a bad career choice, you know? (laughs) Where's this Harvey Crumpet film gonna lead? And I really, and at the time too, we were running out of money. I'd moved back home with my parents in Patterson Lakes. My partner had just dumped me. You know, my my whole uh, self-esteem was incredibly low. So, by the time the film was finished, I was exhausted. We'd run out of money. I went back on, I had to go back on the dole. I went to Centrelink, they were the next government agency I went to. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and then, three or four months later, we, as I said, went to Annecy and then we got shortlisted. And the irony is, the day we found out we were nominated for the Academy Award, um, uh, I had a meeting at Centrelink, and that, that gets us into another little story. But so it was—it was, it was a, a very bittersweet moment, and I honestly can tell you, we really did not think we had any chance of winning, particularly because we're up against Disney, Pixar, and Fox, three of the biggest studios in the world, and our budget is what they would have spent on catering. So <laughs> it really was this David and Goliath. Uh, Do you get like? When you get nominated for an oscar
0: what happens do you literally get somebody who calls you up and says hey hey guess what or well
3: actually it was interesting because at the time um as i said i was unemployed and uh we we weren't quite sure how if we were going to get nominated what would happen and we knew we were one of sh- uh, 20 short films from around the world that were eligible for academy award consideration we'd won a prize at this festival in france So we knew we had a chance, and we were told by the Academy that if we were to be nominated, we'd get a telephone call. uh, I think it was a Wednesday night, a school night, and if the phone rang at midnight, it meant that the Academy uh, had uh, nominated us. Uh, So we had about 30 or so people all crammed into our little tiny flat, my little flat in St Kilda. Uh, We had the 7.30 report were there, Triple J radio, the Herald Sun had a photographer, And it got to midnight and we all stared at the phone and nothing happened. 5 past 12, nothing. 10 past 12, nothing. Quarter past 12, the 7.30 report started to pack up their cameras (laughs) and leave. Mum put the cheap champagne back in the fridge. Uh, But then at 12.20 it rang and we all sprang into the action. The 7.30 report started to record the thing. I picked up the phone. And it was my friend Greg ringing to see whether the phone rang. <laughs> <laughs> and people did start to leave, but then I think it was about twelve thirty-five. It rang again, and it was the Academy, and they just said three, you know, three magical words: "You've been nominated." And that was it. So it was a real, you know, shock to the system. Even now, talking about it, I still get quite emotional, and. Um, we woke up the next day and we were very naive. We thought the Academy would ring to tell us when our first-class airfare tickets would arrive. Yeah, I was Who'd same. be dressing us? Would Amani be dressing you know? But the phone never rang again and we quickly found out that... Uh, ..being in the short animation category is pretty low down on the food chain. And, and so um, I had to... You know, we actually had to sort of uh, ask people for money to get us to Hollywood. Um, and again, the irony was the day we got on the plane to go to Hollywood for the Oscars. Um, on the way to the airport, I was meant to stop off at Centrelink and drop off my doll form. <laughs> <laughs> and Glamorous, back then, wow, well, and if you didn't don't put in your form, they cut you off. And the other thing, you're meant to do, you're not allowed to go overseas. And I, I had $88 in the bank. So I remember getting on that the Qantas flight to LA, thinking, oh, I forgot to put in my doll form. Oh, my God, I'm going to cut, they're going to cut me off. And when I got back, um, I got three letters. Uh, I think it was the third day I got three letters. I'm jumping ahead of, of your questions. But um, I'll never forget this day. That, uh, 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 people started sending us letters and cards after we won. Long lost primary school teachers, cousins, <laughs> cousins I never knew I had. And I used to love going down to the letterbox and pulling out all these letters and cards. And uh, after we got back, I think it was the third or fourth day, there were three letters in a row on the top of this big pile that looked very impressive. And the first one I opened up was from the Prime Minister of the time, Mr Howard, and it just said, Dear Adam, on behalf of Australia, you've made us very proud. You're sincerely Prime Minister Howard. I thought, wow, that's amazing. I didn't even vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) And then I opened the second letter and it was from the Governor-General of the time, the Governor-General of Australia. It looked like it had come out of the same printer. Dear Adam, on behalf of Australia, (laughs) you've made us very proud. I thought, wow, and by this point my ego was getting bigger and bigger. And and then I opened the third letter and it was from Centrelink. And I thought even Centrelink have sent me a congratulatory (laughs) letter. But it just said, dear Mr Elliot, you have been cut off the dole. You did not put in your form. <laughs> and apparently I was meant to go to a seminar that week which was what to wear to a job interview <laughs> and how to write a resume. So I tore that letter up. I'm very proud to say I've not been back to Centrelink since. So, so what did you wear to the Oscars? Sorry? What did you wear to the Oscars? Well, uh, again, I had uh, no one gave us anything to wear. There was no gift bags. We didn't get anything for free. We just got two tickets to the ceremony. Um, Luckily, I I had a suit that I'd been wearing to the AFI Awards for the last 10 years but it was getting a bit tatty and actually in the back of my suit there was a cigarette burn hole that someone had done and I thought, well I can't wear that. But luckily, um, the Channel 9 Today Show, which is still on, uh, they rang and said, look, uh, we hear you've got nothing to wear to the Oscars. (laughs) Um, Obviously you're not going to win. Uh, and even my mum had said, there's no way you're going to win. They, they, you know, we're up against Disney, Pixar and Fox. You know, it's David and Goliath situation. So Channel 9 said, well, we'll go down Chapel Street in Melbourne and we'll go into all these shops and we'll film a little segment for the show and, and they'll donate stuff. So I, everything I wore to the Oscars was donated. So I got a, a donated suit and sunglasses and fancy shoes and... I got a fake tan. I got my uh, <laughs> I got my teeth bleached, and the, the weirdest thing I got for free was I got my eyelashes tinted. <laughs> <laughs> so what? I looked. Why? <laughs> well, you know, it was free. It was, like, it was free. <laughs> I was unemployed. I was like, whatever, you know. So um, and again, that's I didn't think I would be on stage at the Oscars in front of a billion people wearing any of this. So I just thought we'll just you know anyway.
0: So what what? What happens when they read your
3: Well, it, again, the, the Oscars, there's a lot of Oscar myths and um, we, we, we'd already concluded that we hadn't won because we, we'd heard an Oscar myth that when you walk into the Kodak Theatre and you look at your tickets, if you're sitting at the end of the row, that means you've already won because it's quick access to the lectern. And so we looked at our tickets and we weren't, we were sitting in a bit. So we already knew that we we weren't going to win and uh, we sat down and actually the short animation category was in the first 15 minutes, so this was 2004 and it was being telecast, apparently a billion people, I mean who knows how many people watch the Oscars, but um, We sat there, and I'll never forget it, I was, you know, Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson came out dressed as Starsky and Hutch, which was the film they were in. So I I hate the word surreal, but it did start to get quite surreal. And we sat there and and they said the winner is Harvey Crumpet. And I remember thinking, did they just say Harvey Crumpet? (laughs) And I looked at Melanie and she wasn't smiling, she was quite blank, and I thought, Maybe I heard Harvey Crumpet, but they actually said Disney. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? If I stand up and it's not us, I'll look really silly, you know? So, so I thought, what do I do? What do I do? I'm, I'm sure they said Harvey Crumpet. And your, your brain's racing at this point. Re- it's like a wedding. You don't remember any of it, you know, it's all a blur. And, uh, but Jeffrey Rush had given us some advice and he said, Adam, you'll know it's you because suddenly a camera crew will come running down the aisle and if the camera's pointing at you, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. I looked and there was this camera pointing at us. So, um, so I, actually, I don't, I don't remember walking down the aisle. I just remember uh, standing up at the lectern wishing I'd prepared a speech. And um, the first thing I noticed was behind the orchestra pit was a countdown. And it was, it was 45, 44, 43. And that's how many seconds I realised I had left to give my speech, so luckily there weren't that many people to thank, there was Geoffrey Rush, Film Victoria, uh, Screen Australia, um, and I had 10 seconds left and I thought, "Oh, gee, what else can I say to to one billion people? So I remembered that um, Harvey Crumpet was playing on SBS the following Monday night at 8.30, so I told everybody (laughs) to tune into SBS Monday night (laughs) at (laughs) 8.30. Americans would love it. Yeah. And it was the best plug SBS has ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, but no, the other thing too was um, uh, it was quite odd because you you forget that in your hand is, is this big lump of gold. Um, I was going to bring it with me today, but just as oh. I was about to leave, I accidentally... Oh, uh, I did, I, I left it on the... I left it on the dining room table, so I apologise. Actually, I'm lying. Here it is. <laughs> Here it is, right. <laughs> so I love doing that gag. I've done that many yeah. times. <laughs> Works every time, yeah. Um, but uh, two quick stories, um, and I know we're running out of time, but the first thing I did when they gave us a bit, Starsky and Hutch gave me this, um, I looked down and I, I looked to see if my name was on the plaque because I thought well if my name's on the plaque then this isn't Disney's, this is really ours and they're not going to come and take it off us. And I looked down and actually that plaque wasn't there. They send the plaque out in the mail two weeks later and you have to go to a trophy shop and get it attached <laughs> and that leads me to another story. Was. Uh, I'd never really won a trophy, being an asthmatic, non-sporty type person, <laughs> um, so when we got back I got out the yellow pages and I looked up trophy shops and the first trophy shop I came to was the Collingwood Trophy Shop and I know they hadn't won a trophy for a while. <laughs>
0: um,
3: so they're not busy, not right? Not busy. Yeah. So. So I took it down and actually it it didn't come with a box. We had to get a box made for it. So uh, I took this down to the Collingwood Trophy Shop wrapped up in a towel (laughs) and I went up to the counter and I'll I'll never forget this. um, There was this very sort of (coughs) grumpy woman sitting behind the counter and I went up and I said, oh, hello, um, I've got to get this little plaque attached to my trophy. And she sat there and she said, oh, yes, what sort of trophy is it? I said, well, it's one of these. <laughs> and she just stared at me silently. <laughs> and then she said, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. <laughs> and she said, Ron, get in here, Ron. And her husband, Ron, came in. And Ron walked in and the first thing Ron said was, oh, my God, a Logie. I said,
1: well, <laughs> she says, no, I'm not a Logie.
3: Anyway, it took them them two weeks to get the plaque attached and I'm sure they sent it all around Australia to their relatives. (laughs) But the other thing, quickly, I just want to tell you, and you can't see this, but on the back here is a four-digit serial number of how many Oscars they've handed out over the years. And I do remember looking at that briefly when I was on stage and I thought, 3184, and ours is the 184th Oscar ever handed out. But then I realised... That's the postcode of the suburb of Elwood, where I was living when I wrote the script. <laughs> so it was a very um, spooky moment. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's I've forgotten your question, Mark.
0: I, I don't remember <laughs> what I asked. It doesn't matter.
3: So yeah, that's the abbreviated version of what it was like. So, yes, so on right?
0: the back of that, what happens? So you win an Oscar. Mm, a thousand offers.
3: Well, we were very, again, very naive. We really underestimated what had happened. We just thought coming back to Australia, things would would just return to normal. I just wanted to make another film. But we got back to Australia and the paparazzi were waiting at the airport and followed me all the way back to my little rental flat in St Kilda. My dad, I'll never forget this either, my dad was out the front of my flat beside himself and he said, you won't believe who's in your lounge room. Said who, who? And so I went up, up the stairs into my apartment, opened the door, and there was the Premier of Victoria, Steve Bracks, <laughs> with a bottle of champagne and a handwritten card on behalf of Australia. Oh wow! I didn't vote for you either. <laughs> so it was, um, it was a very—I uh, lost my anonymity. Um, you know we we went and did all these uh, TV shows, and we also had the Harvey Crumpet DVD, which we had to sell, you know because we, we had no uh, we, we had no idea what we were going to do next. And I, I have to remind you, I was pretty broke at the time, and so um, it was really important that I got to make another film. So, uh, once the hoo-ha died down, uh, I locked myself away and started writing my first feature film. And that took a couple of years. And then we went back to Screen Australia, who changed their name by then to the uh, the, well, uh, Screen, uh, sorry, the Australian Film Commission, Film Financing Corporation, who are now Screen Australia. And they gave us $8 million um, of your money. Um, LAUGHTER So we made a film called Mary and Max. Some of you may have seen it. It took five years to make. Um, I was able to employ 120 of my fellow uh, struggling artists. Uh, We got to work with uh, Eric Banner, Tony Collette, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's sadly no longer with us. So this this money allowed us to really uh, have a lot of creative freedom and creative control. And I get asked a lot, why, do you, why are you still here here in Australia? Why am I here at Swinburne? Why am I here today? Because uh, we quickly realised Harvey Crumpet had won, not because of our budget or Geoffrey Rush, it was because it was a good story well told, and it was an Australian story. And we realised that that was our strength. Our strength was staying here in Melbourne, despite the big offers we got from Hollywood, despite the offers I still get from Hollywood, I realised that my strength was writing, not plasticine, not making all these sets and props, and telling Australian stories. And my producer came up with an expression that we are self-appointed storytellers for our culture. And that if we were to have a business card, which I still haven't got one yet, but if I got a business card, I think I would put on it storyteller. And I realised that that's that's what it's all about, is, is a good story well told. And that's why I love being here at Swinburne now, as I get to teach storytelling, which is, you know, sadly, there's no magical formula for telling a good story. There are just paradigms and, and principles, but um, it's a very, you, you know, a good story well told can take you anywhere in the world. Um, there is no ceiling. It, it really brings so much and it's not about money. It's just, again, it always, the thing I love the most is sitting at the back of the cinema watching one of my films on the screen with, a, with an audience and hearing them laugh but also seeing them pull out their tissues and have a bit of a cry because n- money can't buy that, you know. It, uh, it's a weird aspiration to have but I think I've realised at the age of 46 my, my aspiration is to make people cry <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a good way. So, um, yeah, I think... Uh, 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 I wished I'd known all this 25 years ago, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, look, I'm I'm hooked on animation, and and I think what I'm l- I think what I'm enjoying the most now at this this point in time is is giving back, I- is employing people to come and help me make my films, working with the students here, um and and just yeah, enjoying that sort of um, almost living vicariously uh, at the moment, yeah. And
0: you, I have to say, because I have worked with you over the last year. <laughs> your impact on our students has been astronomical. They are absolutely besotted with you, <laughs> um, as are we all. Um, and you are currently working on your next feature, because I'm trying to suss out how quickly mm. I can get you back into a classroom with students.
3: Well, I, I uh, as you mentioned, I, last year was the Charles Herschel Fellow, and this year, uh, last semester, I was working with the second and third year animation students, uh, teaching them writing. Uh, at the moment I'm, uh, doing the final draft to my new feature film, uh, we hope to start early next year, um, it's a four million dollar budget, um, we have some big names who I can't mention who are going to do the voices for us, um, and the other thing that's keeping me busy is at the moment, and actually you're one of the first audiences I get to tell, um, Mary and Max ha- is being turned into a Broadway musical in uh, oh. in uh, America. So, oh well, well, <laughs> I, I've I've got nothing to do with it. I, we just sold the rights, and some other clever person has been uh, locked away for seven years writing this musical. Uh, it's now being financed uh, with Broadway musicals. They apparently test them out in other countries first, so it's having its world premiere in Calgary in October. So we're going to fly over for the. Of that. I've, I know I haven't seen. I know nothing about it, so it's all going to be quite alarming. Um, and the irony is, it's, it's well, not irony. Is it's sort of a bittersweet thing. Is that um, Mary Max? For those who haven't seen it, is based on my pen friend who I've been writing to for 25 years. We still write letters the old-fashioned way. Uh, he's still alive and living in New York. So he's sort of uh, as bewildered as I am that this has taken off, and and you. you be careful what you write. <laughs> the pen is mightier than the sword and you never know where these things are going to lead. But as I say to the students here, it is all about writing. Stop obsessing with the technology and the computers. You know, a computer is just a very complicated pencil after all and it's all about the ideas and having great mentors and, and working with people who are like-minded. Uh, so, yeah, you never, you, particularly in, in filmmaking, you never know where it's going to lead you right. Mm, Thanks so much Adam.
0: Thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast for January 2019. We're going to be back next month with both Eloise and I, tanned and beautiful after our time away. Uh, we will be back in the, in the podcast chairs and we will be bringing you our World Poll edition for February in 2019. We'll speak to you then.